Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And on your screen before you right now, you see an advanced Dungeons and Dragons source book for the Dragonlance universe written by authors Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss. Now you might be asking yourself, why do I see this source book on my screen, Rick? And like the answer to so many other questions in virtual legality, the answer to this one is that somebody is suing someone else. Or as Polygon headlines it, Dragonlance authors sue Dungeons and Dragons publisher Wizards of the Coast. A new trilogy was in the works, and now it's caught in court. And I highlighted a new trilogy was in the works because, as best I can tell, this was how the new trilogy by the mainline authors of this book series for the past three decades was effectively announced to the world and then quasi-canceled at the exact same moment in time, which is what the Twitter source, Joseph LaRussa at Joseph LaRussa, who I'm giving a hat tip to right now, had indicated as a good news, bad news situation. Now, he informed me of this lawsuit, certainly one that we are going to be talking about. He said the Dragonlance series is one of his favorite book series, but unfortunately, like so many aspects of popular culture, fantasy, video games, music, and movies, I, I don't know everything, so I wasn't familiar with the Dragonlance series. So we pull up the Wikipedia entry just to get a little bit of background here because that's going to be important in understanding what is at dispute within this lawsuit. It says, Dragonlance is a shared universe created by Laura and Tracy Hickman. Yes, it's worth noting that Tracy Hickman is a man married to Laura, I believe Laura Hickman, and they came up with some of the ideas for Dragonlance. He then wrote some of the original novels with co-writer Margaret Weiss under the direction of a company called TSR Inc., which was originally responsible for Dungeons and Dragons. It says, at TSR, Tracy Hickman met Margaret Weiss, his future writing partner, and they gathered a group of associates to play the Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game, and then they based a lot of this Dragonlance universe and these stories that popped out of this role-playing game, which I always find interesting as the source for so much of the Dungeons and Dragons material out there in the world. In 1984, TSR published the first Dragonlance novel, and while the authoring team of Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss wrote the setting's central books, Numerous other authors contributed novels and short stories to the setting. Over 190 novels have used the Dragonlance setting, and in 1997, Wizards of the Coast purchased TSR. Wizards of the Coast would then later be bought out by Hasbro, which is why we're going to be discussing Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast as part of this lawsuit. But it's important to understand what's happened here, right? Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss created this Dragonlance setting, this universe, and certainly TSR and later Wizards of the Coast think that they have certain intellectual property rights in that universe, or else they couldn't be making another 190 novels within the quote-unquote Dragonlance setting. We see this backstopped by Tracy Hickman himself, who in a blog post on his own website, Q&A, Who Owns Dragonlance, talks about this very issue. He says, Most people assume that because the property was originally created by Laura and I, or because Margaret Weiss and I wrote the core novels, that we own the IP or the copyright to our books. Under normal circumstances, such a perception would be justified. But Dragonlance is an unfortunate case of the capital OBD original bad deal. Now, what he's referencing here, as we will see in this blog post, is signing a bad contract, especially at the start of your career. This is one of those things that, not to toot my own horn, we talk about with a lot of clients and prospective clients here at Hogue Law about what is being offered to you in contract terms and whether or not you can negotiate them. But even if you can't, what the risks and rewards are of that contract. Now, to Mr. Hickman's credit in this blog post, he doesn't seem to be confused about what the risks were in creating this property for another company. He just looks at it as a bad deal because they had these great ideas. They made this company a lot of money and maybe some more of that 
in his eyes, should have been going to him and Margaret as the original authors. He describes the past in the early 1980s as follows. In order to get your first work published and get in the door, an author had to agree to a contract on whatever terms they were offered. For now, suffice it to say that the terms of our contract at TSR Inc. were such as creatives that anything we made or brought into the company of a creative nature while working there was owned by the company. Furthermore, the contracts for the Dragonlance novels, yet another story to be told, were not standard publishing contracts, but work-for-hire contracts, which stipulated that the IP and copyrights to the books were also owned by TSR Inc. So you see here the first instance of a reference to work-for-hire, which is distinct from a creative, an author, making something and then assigning the intellectual property to the company. So if we go and we look at some of this language here in the definitions to the U.S. Copyright Act, we see a definition for work made for hire. And the primary one here is that a work made for hire is a work prepared by an employee within the scope of his or her employment. The definition also includes specially commissioned works that are used as a contribution to a collective work, like a specific part of a motion picture or an audiovisual work or something along those lines. But for the most part, what appears to be being described here is that Tracy Hickman slash Margaret Weiss were actual employees of THR, and then they went forward and made these things, the Dragon Alliance universe, the novels for that company, and under the U.S. Copyright Act, works made for hire, the employer or other person for whom the work was prepared is considered the author for purposes of this title. And unless the parties have expressly agreed otherwise in a written instrument signed by them, that company owns all of the rights comprised in the copyright. Now, this makes a certain amount of sense, right? In general, you want, if you're a company and you've collected all this capital from the various investors and you hire somebody to do something on behalf of the company, you want the company to be the author of whatever comes out of paying the salary, paying the money to that particular person. But there are areas of controversy here, right? An author is especially something that looks like a lot of freelance contracting. It looks like something that probably isn't somebody that has to be on time and be in specific places and use only company resources and answer to a specific boss. Now, they will have to answer in certain respects to editorial and things along those lines, but this is the kind of thing that has been challenged in the past and could be challenged in the future, although Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss don't appear to be inclined to do that. They say the rights were sold as part of the purchase of TSR Inc. by Wizards of the Coast and then subsequently owned by Hasbro when they acquired the company as a subsidiary. There have been recent successful challenges to work-for-hire agreements where creatives have managed to get the rights back on their properties because a work-for-hire requires an actual employee relationship. And if you are, in fact, an independent contractor that the company is just trying to label as an employee, you can go and you can challenge it in court and say, hey, I was never an employee of this entity. That doesn't appear to be the direction that Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss have elected to go. And we don't know why. It might be the case that in the 80s, they were actual employees, that they were there every day at the office and doing certain things that employees do with certain regulations and restrictions that make them look very much like an employee. And they've gone and talked to a lawyer and it doesn't make sense to fight it. So while Laura and I have a fantastic idea for a new Dragonlance trilogy that we would like to write as a reboot, we cannot do so without permission of Wizards of the Coast. Now, this was in... January of 2014. Now, the other important component of the work made for hire is that copyrights can be revoked. Even the assignment of them can be revoked if it's not a work made for hire. If we go and we look at section 203 here of the U.S. Code on copyright, in the case of any work other than a work made for hire, 
The exclusive or non-exclusive grant of a transfer or license of copyright or any right under a copyright is subject to termination. In the case of a grant executed by two or more authors of a joint work, termination of the grant may be effected by a majority of the authors who executed it when the termination may be effected at any time during a period of five years beginning at the end of 35 years from the date of execution of the grant or the end of 35 years from the date of publication of the work. So if we go back and we look at the Wikipedia entry, if this wasn't a work made for hire, if they challenged it, if they said, hey, this was just an assignment to you, then under the current provisions of the U.S. Copyright Act, because the first publication was in 1984 and we don't know anything else respect of grants or work made for hire contracts or anything else, they might well be within the window where the two of them could try to pull back the intellectual property, which would obviously be something that Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro fought very hard. But this actual lawsuit that we're about to read doesn't claim that at all. It says basically that they need that license. They're trying to establish that they need that license to make that money because this is a breach of contract case. This is really more of a breach of contract case than anything specifically talking about intellectual property, copyright assignments, work made for hire. And it's one that's going to be interesting because we are going to read through it. We're going to take a look at the facts behind it. But there are certain things that we expect to see in a plaintiff's document. And there are certain things that are kind of elided that might be brought back up in either a counterclaim from the defendant or just a defense and answers to the claims brought by the plaintiff in this particular instance. We're going to look at all of that. But suffice it to say, this document presents some good arguments. It looks like a winner to me just reading a plaintiff's document, but it's important to take a step back and say that's what a plaintiff's document is supposed to look like. If you've only seen Epic versus Apple here in virtual legality and from the off looked at the Epic documents and I said, ooh, that's a tough argument to make under the present status of the law, that's unusual. In general, a plaintiff bringing a claim before a court, if no other documents were ever filed, you'd look at it and say, oh yeah, clearly the defendant did some wrong here. We should give the plaintiff some redress. We should give him some money because that's what that document is supposed to do. Epic is a little bit unusual in that case. So first we get the definitions, right? Wizards of the Coast is the defendant here. Weiss and Hickman are the plaintiff creators. It says over 35 years ago, plaintiff creators conceived of and created the Dragonlance universe, a campaign setting for the Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game, the rights to which are owned by defendant. Now that's important, right? In this lawsuit, you're basically giving up any further claims in the future that you are going to say that these rights should be owed by you, should be reverted to you in some fashion. There's a lot of language in this lawsuit that would come spinning back around if Weiss and Hickman tried to complain about the work made for hire concept from back in the early 80s. So you can see that they're really putting their eggs in this basket and saying, hey, no, yes, you have those rights, but you licensed them to us and we were harmed uh, by your failure to perform. It says Weiss and Hickman's own works remain by far the most familiar and saleable within the Dragonlance universe. Yes, there's been 190 separate fictional works, but we are the cornerstone. We are the foundation to Dragonlance. It's very important to us and to Wizards of the Coast and to Hasbro in general. In or around 2017, plaintiff creators learned the defendant was receptive to licensing its properties with established authors to revitalize the Dungeons and Dragons brand. After a 10-year hiatus, plaintiff creators approached defendant and began negotiating for a license to author a new Dragonlance trilogy. So you got to keep a lot of these dates in mind, but that's in 2017. Given that the Dragonlance series intellectual property is owned by defendant, there could be no publication without a license. In March 2019, 
the negotiations between the parties hereto culminated in new written licensing agreement, whereby Weiss and Hickman were to personally author and publish a new Dragonlance trilogy in conjunction with Penguin Random House, a highly prestigious book publisher. So in 2017, it looked like Wizards of the Coast was trying to revitalize Dungeons and Dragons. They talked with Wizards of the Coast, and by March of 2019, they had their negotiations culminate in Wizards of the Coast actually licensing out Wizards of the Coast's own rights to the Dragonlance universe to these authors for them to make a novel trilogy. By the time the license agreement was signed, Defendant had a full overview of the story and story arc with considerable detail of the planned trilogy. Defendant knew exactly the nature of the work it was going to receive and had pre-approved Penguin Random House as the publisher. So why is this stuff up at the front of this document? One of the things they are going to try to establish is that Wizards of the Coast acted in bad faith, that they knew exactly what they were getting into when they signed this contract. They knew the arc of the story. They knew what the outline of each specific novel was. They knew who the publishing partner was going to be. And then sometime in between signing the license agreement and now they revoked or they changed their mind on what they had agreed to in writing in a way that, as presented in these plaintiff documents, surely looks like a breach of contract, if not a breach of good faith and fair dealing, which is what we will also talk about as part of this analysis. By June 2019, middle of last year, defendant received and approved a full outline of the first contracted book in the trilogy. And by November 2019, the publisher had accepted a manuscript for book one. So first, it's worth noting how quickly these authors work. I'm always amazed by this when I talk to creatives, when I talk to clients who make things for a living. They got this license agreement in March of 2019. By June, Defendant, Wizards of the Coast had an outline. And by November, Penguin had a manuscript for book one. Plaintiff creators, the authors, in turn sent the book one manuscript to Defendant, who approved it in January 2020. Looked at it for a couple of months and then approved it. During the development and writing process, plaintiff creators met all contractual milestones and received all requisite approvals from defendant. During the writing process, now we start to get into some interesting stuff. One of the things that's going to happen here is that these authors in particular are going to make certain statements on information and belief, and they're going to elide to certain pretextual conditions for why Wizards of the Coast would want to do this to them when they say that they have conformed to all of their responsibilities in the contract. One of those reasons is essentially going to be the zeitgeist here over the summer in 2020. During the writing process, defendant proposed certain changes in keeping with the modern day zeitgeist of a more inclusive and diverse story world. At each step, plaintiff creators timely accommodated such requests and all others within the framework of their novels. Now, I've highlighted within the framework of their novels in red here because what we're trying to figure out is this seems like an obvious breach of contract. Wizards of the Coast seems like they're obviously going to be acting against these folks outside of the terms of the contract they've negotiated. What could Wizards of the Coast, maybe also Hasbro, bring up against these authors? And you see in red one of the things that they might bring up says, hey, they accommodated their requests within the framework of their novels. What does that mean? If there is a strong delineation between what Wizards of the Coast wants, especially if they are dealing with all this blowback that the authors have identified, especially here in 2020, and you say, yes, we can change those things within the framework of our novels. Well, they say, well, we don't like the framework of your novels anymore. Where do those different 
perspectives on this project meet? And what rights does Wizards of the Coast have to effectively change things whole scale from the outline? Because as far as Wizards of the Coast is concerned, the world has changed since they entered into that license agreement. Now, a lot of that is going to depend on what the actual language of the license agreement said. And unfortunately, we don't have that license agreement as part of this filing. So we have to take the plaintiff's description of what applies here on faith. And ultimately, Wizards of the Coast would likely bring up other sections and other rights that they have in the contract when they respond to a complaint like this one. This collaborative process tracks with section 2A3, which we will see, of the license agreement, which requires defendant to approve plaintiff creator's drafts or alternatively provide written direction as to the changes that will result in defendant's approval of a draft. On or about August 13th, 2020, so just a few months ago, defendant declared that it would not approve any further drafts of book one or any subsequent works in the trilogy, effectively repudiating and terminating the license agreement. Now we're going to see some of this language, but understand what they are accusing Wizards of the Coast of doing here. So they've got a license agreement. It says, we have to write some stuff. We have to get it out on a certain timely basis. We have to hit these milestones. We have to do certain things for you. And if we do those things, you will license to us the intellectual property rights to this universe. On the flip side, they say, okay, we get to review what you provide to us and we get to give certain notes and we will work together to get these documents out. We will work together to get these novels created. What they are accusing Wizards of the Coast of doing is effectively saying, yeah, we said that, but we will just not approve anything anymore. And that doesn't really mean we're terminating the agreement. That doesn't mean that we're accusing anybody of breach or doing anything like that. We have the right to approve the manuscripts and we just won't anymore. And I think the authors are right to say that's not how the contract is written. That's not what is contemplated here. If you have an issue with what we have written, you have to do these various things. And we will see that Wizards of the Coast committed to making notes and telling them what they would need to change to make things right. And in fact, we're doing that as part of the process before August 13th, 2020. The termination, as the authors claim it here, was unlawful and in violation of multiple aspects of the license agreement, and arguably almost every part of it, in fact. The termination also had the knowing and premeditated effect of precluding publication and destroying the value of plaintiff creators' work, not to mention their publishing deal with Penguin Random House, right? And we've talked in this space about detrimental reliance. We've talked about encouraging somebody to do something and then breaching your contractual agreement with them, breaching your responsibility, your promises to them, and that the law looks at that and says, well, maybe you owe them something then. And part of this argument, which they categorize all into the good faith and fair dealing bucket rather than incorporate detrimental reliance as a complaint, as we will see, is basically to say, look, you knew all of this. You had the outline. You knew we had entered into a publishing agreement. By taking these steps, you've blown all of that up for us. And worse, we've worked for a year or two on this. You have taken our labor under the precept that you were going to act in good faith under your contract, and then you failed to do so, and you owe us something for that. Defendants' acts and failures to act breached the license agreement and were made in stunning and brazen bad faith. Defendant acted with full knowledge that its unilateral decision would not only interfere with, but also would lay waste to the years of work that plaintiff creatives, uh, creators had to that point put into the project and would nullify the millions of dollars in remuneration to which plaintiff creators were entitled from their publishing contract. As plaintiff creators subsequently learned, 
Defendant's arbitrary decision to terminate the license agreement was based on events that had nothing to do with either the work or plaintiff creators. In fact, at nearly the exact point in time of the termination, August of this year, defendant was embroiled in a series of embarrassing public disputes whereby its non-Dragonlance publications were excoriated for racism and sexism. Moreover, the company itself was vilified by well-publicized allegations of misogyny and racist hiring and employment practices by and with respect to artists and employees unrelated to Dragonlance. Plaintiff creators are informed and believe, and based thereon allege, that a decision was made jointly by defendant and its parent company Hasbro Inc. to deflect any possible criticism or further public outcry regarding defendant's other properties by effectively killing the Dragonlance deal with plaintiff creators. Now, it's hard to get from point A to point B there, but they really want, as part of this court filing, to show that Wizards of the Coast was dealing with other stuff. To show that while they might bring a counterclaim, they might bring an answer to this complaint that says, look, they didn't do X, Y, or Z that we asked them to do. They were in breach of their agreement. That's what you would usually see here. They are trying to get in front of that argument and say, whatever they tell you next, judge, what has happened here is that Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro were dealing with other stuff and what they decided was they wanted to wash their hands of Dungeons and Dragons and Dragonlance in general for at least a little while in order to weather this particular storm. And so whatever they tell you in response to we didn't comply with our end of the bargain is a lie. It's pretextual and you need all this background to understand what the situation with Wizards of the Coast was at the time. Now we get jurisdiction and venue. This is a federal case that is made by diversity of citizenship. The various parties are in different locations and is worth more than $75,000. So that's how you get to a federal case level. Then you get some facts common to all causes of action about what's happening here. And this is where we see, as we did with Epic versus Apple, some of the fun language that lawyers use. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, to fans of the genre, they are rock stars. Judge, these are very important people. In 1997, prior to seeking Weiss's and Hicksman's assistance, defendant acquired the Dungeons & Dragons brand from a failing entity known as TSR Inc. As a result of plaintiff creator's contributions, defendant staged a dramatic resurgence for the Dungeons & Dragons brand. Based on this resurgence, in 1999, defendant was acquired by and is now a subsidiary of Hasbro Inc. Now, as we've talked about, this is alighting some of the issues, right? Yes, I am sure that they contributed to Dungeons & Dragons popularity. Maybe they contributed to its resurgence at Wizards of the Coast. But Wizards of the Coast makes a lot of stuff, right? Wizards of the Coast makes a lot of board games, makes a lot of card games. Magic the Gathering will be referenced in this document itself. Makes a lot of different role-playing games, works in fantasy novels of all different kinds. And yes, I am no doubt that they were a contributor to why Wizards of the Coast was eventually bought by Hasbro, but based on this resurgence, probably a little strong. They didn't buy Wizards of the Coast solely because Dragonlance was popular and solely because of the efforts of these particular authors. But again, the lawyer's job is to zealously advocate for their client. And so they say, hey, you know what? They got back involved. Hasbro paid Wizards of the Coast a fortune. And now we should get some kind of credit for that. Once defendant expressed interest in 2017, Plaintiff creators began negotiating with book publishers with respect to a book publication and marketing deal. The negotiations with regard to the license agreement and publishing agreement were open as between the parties as the two contracts went hand in glove. Obviously, in the context of the Dragonlance IP, a publishing contract without the license would be worthless. You can't actually publish those books. 
And a license without a publishing contract would likewise be worthless unless the authors just wanted to write something to put on their shelf, right? You can't do anything if you don't have a publishing agreement. And so these contracts were negotiated at the same time. Now, they also say that these were very valuable to the planet creators. Indeed, with additional performance bonuses, royalties, and ancillary income streams, and given the pent-up demand for new works by planet creators, the Penguin Random House deal was worth in excess of $10 million to the planet creators. Now, you see a little bit of guesswork there, right? Especially the given the pent-up demand for new works by planet creators. Maybe that is, in fact, the case. Maybe this is worth a ton of money. Maybe people are really excited about that book series. Certainly, When this lawsuit went up yesterday, a lot of places that I regularly read news from covered it, talked about the fact that this lawsuit was in play. So undoubtedly, this is a very important series of books. These are very important authors to a number of people. Does that mean it's $10 million? You kind of have to guess a little bit, and that's okay in the initial complaint kind of framework, but it's worth noting all the same. On or about February 28th, 2019, Defendant and Penguin entered into a side agreement that was essentially a building block for the final license agreement, which we remember will be entered into by these parties in March the next month. In that side agreement, defendant not only specifically acknowledged Penguin's pivotal role in the licensing arrangement with plaintiff creators, but also expressly made clear that the license was going to be conveyed in toto to plaintiff creators with very limited approval and consultation rights reserved to defendant, all of which related to marketing of the books. Now, we'll see certain bits of language here that actually says that Wizards of the Coast had at least certain editorial rights, certain things that they could say about the quality of the content that was being provided by the authors. But what is important in this particular statement of facts is that they are establishing that Wizards of the Coast and Penguin were talking, that they entered into a separate agreement where Penguin got effectively an insurance policy, that what these authors were getting from Wizards of the Coast was sufficient to allow Penguin to publish the books, and that Wizards of the Coast wouldn't be getting Penguin into trouble wouldn't be doing things like, oh, I don't know, arbitrarily and capriciously not approving any manuscripts under their license agreement. So Penguin was acting on that basis and entered into the publishing agreement with these authors on that basis as well. On March 29th, 2019, plaintiff creators and Penguin entered into the publishing agreement. Penguin remitted the signing payment due under the publishing agreement to plaintiff creators in April of 2019. And per the terms of the license agreement between these authors and Wizards of the Coast, they in turn remitted a portion of the signing payment to Wizards of the Coast. So they get this money from Penguin as an advance to make these books. And because the license agreement requires them to share certain of the money that they get in respect of this publication, they give certain of that money directly to Wizards of the Coast. And then they point out an amount defendant continues to retain despite having effectively terminated the license agreement. They're keeping that money, even though we might be well on the hook for that money to be returned to Penguin because there aren't going to be any books that are coming out of this relationship as it stands right now. Per the license agreement, defendant transferred rights to the Dungeons and Dragons Dragonlance brand expressly for the writing, marketing, and sale of that trilogy of Dragonlance books to plaintiff creators. Now, I wouldn't use the word transfer here. I would say they licensed the rights out. These rights weren't effectively transferred, but that's okay. The point is that the license agreement licenses the intellectual property to Dragonlance to these authors for the purpose of making this trilogy of books. Defendant was at all times aware that the contemplated works, which were a massive and comprehensive literary undertaking, would be a multi-year endeavor. Accordingly, certain milestones were set whereby defendant, having approved the story concept, storyline, and story arc, reserved the right to approve certain narrowly defined deliverables, primarily limited to the marketing of the work. 
the approvals were never meant to be a replacement for the express and narrow termination provisions in the agreement. They were never intended in this contract, as the plaintiffs say, to be able to say, look, we're just going to withhold all approvals. And yeah, that might not terminate the agreement in reality, but you're not going to make any money from it. We're not going to make any money from it. We're just not going to meet our end of these obligations. And so it's effectively void and and invalid and dead in the water. So that is what these guys claim, and I think rightly so, effective as a unilateral termination. By June of 2019, defendant and Hasbro had expressly approved a detailed outline of book one. In November of 2019, Penguin indicated that the complete manuscript of book one was accepted and it would push through the second payment due on the publishing agreement. At that time, plaintiff creators submitted the complete manuscript of book one to defendant Hasbro, who expressly approved the book one manuscript in January 2020. Now, I've highlighted this in blue because it is interesting. Inexplicably, and despite plaintiff creators' repeated request, Penguin never actually delivered the second payment due on approval of the book one manuscript. This is the kind of thing where we start to see some kind of issue that we can't identify solely from this document in the description of events that occurred here, right? They say that they submitted a complete manuscript to Penguin in November of 2019. Penguin tells them that they're going to push through the second payment due on the publishing agreement, that upon delivery of a book one manuscript, they're supposed to get another advance, another chunk of change from Penguin. Penguin tells them they are going to pay it, and then Penguin never does, despite these authors repeatedly requesting it from Penguin. Now, what is happening there? We don't know, but we will see later on that these particular authors are accusing Wizards of the Coast of actually communicating directly with Penguin and making certain editorial concerns known to Penguin and potentially getting directly in the way of Penguin releasing this money because Wizards of the Coast is telling them that they might not continue to approve the manuscripts on their end, and so the license will effectively be void. This is the kind of thing that does look like interference with contractual relationships and may well be another winner for these authors in this court case, depending, of course, on what Wizards of the Coast and maybe even Penguin have to say about it. In or about June of 2020, defendant changed the editorial and oversight team assigned to the new Dragonlance trilogy. And this is one of the things that these authors are going to put on Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast as being responsible for some of the problems here. They removed Liz Shu and Hillary Ross and replaced them with Nick Kelman and Paul Morrissey. Now, they spend a little time deriding, at least Mr. Kelman here. Mr. Kelman was subject to ongoing public discussions of whether his work contained or promoted misogyny and pedophilia. Following Mr. Kelman's assignment to Defendant's Dragonlands team, Defendant issued a four-point set of comments dealing with various sensitivity issues ranging from the use of love potions in the story to concerns of sexism, inclusivity, and potential negative connotations of certain character names. So they changed their editorial team in June of 2020. And then after that, and apparently after these authors say the manuscript was basically approved by both publisher and licensor, this new editor, Mr. Kelman, comes in and says that they have problems with love potions, sexism, inclusivity, and character names. Now, the authors say, okay, and as they put forth in this complaint document, on each occasion when the publisher or defendant directly or indirectly expressed reservations about the text or required rewrites, including quote-unquote sensitivity rewrites, plaintiff creators accommodated such requests and provided the rewrites, in one case, 70 pages worth of rewritten material, presumably about things like love potions. If you can't use them, that probably changes a lot 
of the plot. But when you look at what is happening here, you can see in the earlier facts, they're saying they don't even need to do this, that the approval rights of the licensor and the publisher were limited in certain respects to things like marketing, to things that don't relate specifically to editorial, but they got these comments and they say, yes, we rewrote these things and we did everything that was asked of us. Now, let's just pretend we're Wizards of the Coast for a second. Wizards of the Coast is dealing with all this fighting over the summer, is dealing with all these things that we will see described in the next few facts alleged against Wizards of the Coast. They're dealing with all this stuff and they get a rewrite back from these authors and the new editorial team, maybe even Penguin, doesn't love it, doesn't love what direction it's going, has these backroom meetings and effectively decides, look, they're not going to get to a place where we are going to be comfortable distributing this licensed work. What do you do in that case? Now, you're signed up to a contract with these authors and you are not satisfied with the rewrites that you are getting. They say they complied with them. Now, the license, as we will see, actually says, all right, you have to keep telling them what you want changed. And maybe this lawsuit develops anyway because you give them 200 changes. They have to change the entire scope and concept of their writing and you just make trouble for them and they bring a suit against you for breach of good faith and fair dealing anyway. But what you probably aren't allowed to do is just say, nah, no matter what you write, we're not going to approve it, even though we've signed up this license agreement, even though you've dedicated years of your work to this, even though you've signed up an ancillary agreement with another party that is also going to accuse you of breach when you don't deliver a manuscript to them. Nope, we're just not going to approve anything else. That's Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro doing something that probably is outside the bounds of their license. But we can start to see the picture for how Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro probably got there. That they probably weren't fully satisfied with these changes occurring within the universe of Dungeons and Dragons, or maybe they're not even satisfied with Dungeons and Dragons as it exists right now. We've seen changes in things like Magic the Gathering coming out of Wizards of the Coast in response to some of these articles and some of these complaints about the company. So they are trying to deal with a situation, perhaps slightly of their own making, but they're trying to deal with it in a way that as a corporate lawyer, I look at and say, yeah, that probably is out of bounds. In fact, given that the process was moving forward, plaintiff creators also informed defendant that they had completed book two of the trilogy, Fast Riders, provisionally titled Dragons of Fate. By early to mid-2020, particularly in the July 2020 timeframe, separate from anything having to do with Dragonlance, defendant was engulfed in controversies. Specifically, defendant was subject to a drumbeat of negative publicity related to alleged pervasive racism and various forms of cultural insensitivity slash offensiveness in connection with its Magic the Gathering trading cards, as well as with its professional hiring and advancement practices within the company. In particular, beyond the issue of Mr. Kelman, which we've already identified for you above, Judge, who remained controversial, the hiring of alleged white supremacist alt-right QAnon-affiliated story artist was targeted by defendants' detractors, as was the alleged over-sexualizing of the work. Look, Judge, regardless of what they tell you in response to this complaint, they are bad actors, and while this doesn't directly implicate our particular breach of contract complaint, you should know that they are hiring bad people, they're doing all these bad things, and yes, in respect of our complaint, anything that they might complain about with respect to our performance is probably pretextual. Remember that, Judge, as well. As a result, defendant issued a public apology, which in turn only fanned the flames of consumer Twitter internet blowback against defendant all the more. You got to watch those public apologies. If you do them wrong, uh, the internet just gets more angry and the outrage mob just looks for blood. On information and belief, the aforementioned controversies came to the attention of and were addressed at 
the highest levels by defendant's parent company Hasbro. So while this is all happening, you have a change in leadership attention, right? And if you are involved in working with any kind of giant corporation, you know, this isn't necessarily a good thing, right? Wizards of the Coast is a subsidiary of Hasbro. That doesn't mean that the Hasbro CEO or C-level executives are constantly looking at what Wizards of the Coast is doing. Just like if we're talking about something like Star Wars, it doesn't mean that Disney is constantly looking at what Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm are doing until they are, until there is a controversy, until there is blowback from consumer and Twitter and internet as described herein. At that point, you start to get other people invested in what you are doing at the subsidiary level. And when you have that change, when you have different brain space looking at the product, you can get these kinds of situations where Hasbro says, no, uh uh-uh, we don't like any of this. We don't want to approve any of this. What kind of agreement have you entered into? Just tell them that you're not going to approve any manuscript from here on out. Plaintiff creators ultimately discovered that at the same time defendant was under this public siege, as they describe it, Defendant was interacting and communicating directly with PRH, Penguin, on editorial topics related to book one and the trilogy with the intent of actively interfering with plaintiff creator's business relationships. So this is an important paragraph. They are saying not only are they doing this, they're under all these attacks, they're figuring out what they are going to do with these authors and with this book series. They're also communicating with Penguin directly about this situation which they do have an interest in, so they can have those communications, but on editorial topics, which may or may not relate to the rights that either the license holder or the publisher have, and they're keeping the authors out of the conversation. This might be why you see Penguin not forward the money for the delivery of Manuscript 1, even after both parties have apparently approved it. Then we get to the August 13th, 2020 call, in which defendant's attorney stated defendant refused to perform under the license agreement. They probably didn't frame it that way. When challenged about the grounds for such termination, Mr. Mitchell responded with the nonsensical statement, we are not moving toward breach, but we will not approve any further drafts. Now this suggests an entire bit of language and discussion and conversation that the plaintiffs are not bringing up. And it's not their job to bring it up, but we can expect the defendants at Wizards of the Coast to bring it up. We are not moving towards breach suggests that Wizards of the Coast's attorney at least thinks that they might have a claim against the authors for breach of contract in some fashion. Now, that's a threat. Doesn't mean that they have a good complaint against them. We talked about that with respect to Dr. Disrespect and Twitch, right? You don't have to have a good reason to terminate or a good contractual ability to do something to rattle your saber a bit and try to threaten the other party that maybe you do. So when you get the quote-unquote nonsensical statement, we are not moving towards breach, that's the lawyer saying, look, we're not going to approve any more manuscripts, but we're not going to sue you for breaching your agreement. And so you should walk away. Now, the authors look at that. They talk to their own attorneys and say, that's ridiculous. We're going to sue you. And in fact, they did as of yesterday. But that's what this statement means. It's not nonsensical coming from Wizards of the Coast. They're trying to imply slash threaten these authors that if they wanted to, they could bring them up for breach presumably based on some kind of quality slash editorial condition that they would bring onto the license agreement, which we don't really see addressed a lot, but we will see one reference to in this document, and I will highlight it when we get there. By expressly withdrawing its future approvals, defendant effectively terminated plaintiff creators' ability to publish their work, destroyed plaintiff creators' ability to mitigate or modify their storylines or marketing materials to address any approval issues, because they won't give them any information, and knowingly interfered with plaintiff creator's third-party contract with Penguin, which could have resulted in the loss of tens of millions of dollars, as they say in this document. As will be subject to proof at trial, 
Defendant's acts were not privileged under the license agreement and are not subject to any of the contractual limitations on damages. So when you enter into a license agreement, there will generally be a limitation of liability section that will say, we aren't responsible for damages X, Y, and Z, or maybe we aren't responsible for damages above a certain amount. One of the things they are saying here, even though they don't itemize that bit of the license agreement in this document, is we will show that they acted by means of fraud or bad faith or something that kicks them out of those contractual limitations on damages. And so we are asking for all the money from Hasbro, which has it, and from Wizards of the Coast, which which maybe doesn't. I, I don't know the financial position of Wizards of the Coast against Hasbro. Now we get to their claims for relief. The very first claim is breach of contract. So they give you the terms. They say, hey, you licensed this to us. We received an exclusive right to sublicense it to our publisher. And then they say the following. Nowhere in the license agreement to defendant assert, stipulate, or contend that it was granting a revocable license, a license that can be taken away, other than with respect to the 10-year term. So they had a 10-year term. Specifically, in the key terms sheet, which may or may not be a legitimate part of the document, that's a question for another time, defendant made clear that the 10-year term commenced from the first sale of the third book and expired 10 years later uh, or by December 31st, 2032, whichever was first. So in general, they had a license to this intellectual property until December 31st, 2032. As far as Wizards of the Coast is concerned, they still have that license because they aren't terminating the agreement on a legal technicality basis, but they also aren't approving any manuscripts for publication, which is a required condition precedent to actually making any books. And so the authors rightly say it is in fact terminated and you aren't meeting your end of the bargain. The obligations under the license agreement are clearly set forth in section two of the agreement itself. Specifically, plaintiff creators were obligated to set the work in the Dragonlance campaign setting, use good faith to develop and publish at least one work per year, secure a publishing deal, and comply with a few other marketing responsibilities. Significantly, section 2A3, which we saw referenced above, provide that licensees shall submit drafts of each work to licensor. So the authors have to submit a draft of their manuscript for review and approval prior to publication. Within a mutually agreed time period not to exceed 10 days following receipt of each such draft, licensor shall respond in writing to licensees advising licensees whether such draft is acceptable to licensor and if not acceptable, advising licensees in reasonable detail of the changes necessary in order to render such draft acceptable to licensor right? When they submit a manuscript under the express terms of the license as put forth in this complaint, Wizards of the Coast has 10 days to get notes back to them on what they need to change in order to get it approved. Except in August of this past year, Wizards of the Coast said, we're not approving any further manuscripts, which is a kind of blanket term and completely eviscerates their obligation under this portion of the agreement. And this is where I tend to think this is a very strong argument on the part of the authors. It says, you have to do this. This is your obligation. If you don't do this, we can sue you for breach of contract, which is obviously exactly what they're doing. Nothing in the above provision allows defendant to terminate the license agreement based on defendant's failure to provide approval. To the contrary, should defendant find any aspect of the draft to be unacceptable, defendant has an affirmative duty under contract to provide reasonable detail of any changes plaintiff creators must make. And they have said they aren't going to do that. Then we get to section 2B. This subsection provides that licensors shall provide licensees with story guides for use in the development of the works. And licensors shall provide a reasonable amount of consultation to licensees throughout the development of each work. Having summarily announced that it would no longer approve any drafts, 
defendants separately violated and breached Section 2B of the license agreement. Section 3 then comes in and talks about marketing. Details related to each of the works, development plan, publication, sales and marketing, including schedules, milestones, localizations, advertising, and marketing materials, each marketing plan, websites, promotions, publishers, and other matters reasonably requiring approval are also subject to licensor's approval, Wizards of the Coast. Notwithstanding anything provided in this agreement to the contrary, any approval by licensor shall not be unreasonably withheld, delayed, or conditioned with the understanding that if licensor fails to approve a matter or item, such non-approval shall be deemed reasonable. Said another way, again, they have a short period of time to approve these things, which aren't the manuscript. This is the development plan publication. This is the marketing stuff. And if they fail to deny their approval of anything, then they will have accepted it as termed under the agreement. And then you don't have to worry about them accepting it in the future. So you have all these various things that Wizards of the Coast is agreed to and negotiated as part of their contract where they say, hey, we got a couple of days to do this kind of thing, 10 days at the outside, and we owe you notes or we owe you comments or we owe you some kind of corrective obligation in order for you to correct it. And they are now refusing to do that. Defendant is in further and separate breach of contract because it has terminated the contract outside the termination provisions as set forth as section nine of the license agreement. Now, Wizards of the Coast will respond that the agreement isn't terminated. It's just that these authors can't do anything under it. But there are essentially six grounds for termination, none of which apply to defendant's conduct. Section nine states in pertinent part that if licensees materially breach this agreement and such breach is not cured within 30 days of the receipt by licensees of written notice thereof, then licensor shall have the right to terminate. Now, they have said that there isn't any notice about breach, so that wouldn't apply. But one of the things that is also a default is, as I have highlighted here, a licensee or licensees fails to comply with the approval or quality requirements. Now, this is the only time in this document that we see reference to quality requirements. And so that does imply that there is something in the license agreement that talks about Wizards of the Coast being able to approve the quality of the subject matter, of the manuscript that is being provided to them. Now, even if they do get that approval ability with respect to quality requirements, they would still have to go through the ordinary process of giving them the notes within 10 days. But you can see where the law starts to have to figure out an equitable solution to these problems. Let's imagine another fact pattern that the authors just keep responding to the notes with small changes that don't satisfy Wizard of the Coast. And they do this for six months or nine months or a year. When does Wizard of the Coast just get to say, look, you're in breach. You're not obligating yourself properly. You're not acting in good faith. And so we can terminate the agreement. That's the normal way of doing things. And they might well sue based on that. But what Wizards of the Coast has done here is outside of those bounds. This is, in fact, similar to what we saw described in the Epic versus Apple case, where Epic just breaches the agreement and Apple says, no, you're kicked off the store. Here, Wizard of the Coast just says, no, nah, we're not going to approve anything, even though they have language in their document, at least as claimed and alleged in this complaint, that requires them to give these notes. And by not doing that, I do think that these authors have a pretty good argument that the agreement was effectively terminated. Either way... As set forth in this document, defendant did not provide any cause for its non-approval and certainly provided no opportunity to address or cure the cause of non-approval, as is required by contract, thereby creating yet another express breach of the contract. On or about August 13th, via the statement and action set forth above, defendant breached the agreement by asserting that it would never provide any of the subsidiary approvals for any draft manuscripts, failing to provide approvals for drafts without providing the requisite information and advice, and the termination was outside the confines of the termination provisions. So judge, this is all a breach of contract and we would ask for 
some redress. The second claim for relief here is that they breached their implied duty of good faith and fair dealing. Now, if you've been in virtual legality for a while, you know we have addressed this. We have talked about good faith and fair dealing in the past. But what's important to note about this is that there is no way to write a contract with another party that prohibits or prevents them from acting in bad faith, right? You're always going to have rules and obligations and things of this nature that you could use to your benefit that are outside the spirit of the document you've entered into. If we imagine that everything the authors in this case has said is right about their license agreement, then Wizards of the Coast has the right to approve their manuscript and they could just deny it. They could just lie about what they want fixed. They could change their minds every time for six years. And if they did that, that would be abusing the spirit of the agreement that these two parties had entered into, wherein the spirit is we're going to get a book out. And because both sides want to protect their interests, we are going to have an approval right if we're Wizards of the Coast that we make sure that your book is up to our standards of quality, doesn't have a bunch of typos, doesn't have a bunch of run-on or broken sentences, maybe doesn't put our people in compromising positions in a fashion we don't like to be representative of our brand. And then you agree to write things. And then we are going to use our approval rights to protect our interests. You're going to write things to make your money, to protect your interests. But you can see even in that rule set that one side or the other could act in bad faith. So what is implied in every contract in the United States is a duty of good faith and fair dealing. I've pulled up an American Bar Association article here, which I have referenced before, that is actually about franchise law, I think, but it has a good definition of what we are looking at here, which is an equitable principle. So this is harder than just black letter law in the contract itself, right? Their best, strongest argument is, look, judge, they had to give us notes in 10 days. They didn't do that. They're in breach. Then when you get down to this, good faith and fair dealing, you have to convince the judge of the fairness of your position. Good faith has generally been defined as honesty in a person's conduct during the agreement. Fair dealing usually requires more than just honesty. It generally requires that a party cannot act contrary to the spirit of the contract, even if you give the opposing party notice that you intend to do so. In general, the duty of good faith and fair dealing means, for example, that parties cannot evade the spirit of the bargain, lack diligence or slack off, perform incorrectly on purpose, abuse their power when specifying the terms of a contract or interfere with or fail to cooperate in the other party's performance, right? The authors have an obligation to deliver these books. They are trying to do so, at least as alleged in their complaint. And what Wizards of the Coast is saying is you will never satisfy us. You will never complete your obligation because you have to get a manuscript approved by us and we will withhold that approval for now and forevermore. And so they're saying, judge, this is a breach of good faith and fair dealing. We entered into this agreement and performed these services for years on the premise that we would be getting compensation for doing this work. And then they just said, nah. The license agreement between plaintiff creators and defendant contained an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing by and between the parties, which prohibits them from engaging in any activity or conduct which would prevent the other party from receiving the benefits of the contract. Defendant's backdoor termination of the license agreement on the pretext of we will not approve any future drafts was a stunning act of bad faith that completely destroyed the value, purpose, and protections of the license agreement. Not only was defendant's statement that we will not approve any future drafts a clumsy effort to circumvent the termination provisions, it undermined the fundamental structure of the contractual relationship whereby the defendant licensor would provide plaintiff creators the opportunity and roadmap to fix, rewrite, cure, any valid concerns related to the protection of the Dungeons and Dragons brand. Look, judge, we agree that they should have this right to approve things. That's normal in these contracts. That's normal for a licensor to want. 
but they can't use this thing that we gave to them in good faith to punish and kill us and hurt our other contractual relationships. Defendant's backdoor termination also had the effect, which was fully known and intended by defendant, of destroying the value of the painstaking work that plaintiff creators had performed over the course of years in preparing and writing the works. Defendant was aware that book one was basically complete and that book two was substantially in progress and that the story arc of book three was in place from the beginning. Additionally, defendant's acts of bad faith nullified every effort the plaintiff creators had undertaken to enact the suggested notes and direction by defendant along the way with respect to textual conceptual revisions to book one. Further, defendant's bad faith conduct of knowingly maliciously and intentionally pulling the license and terminating the license agreement had the effect of interfering with and destroying the value of their lucrative book deal with Penguin, which is how you arrive at third claim for relief, tortious interference with contract. At all relevant times, defendant was aware of the publishing agreement. Defendant intentionally caused plaintiff creators to breach the publishing agreement on information and belief. Defendant also engaged in back-channel activities to disrupt the publishing agreement by convincing Penguin that defendant would prevent plaintiff creators from performing under the publishing agreement. So they are acting under the belief, as we put together in reading the document in toto, that Wizards of the Coast was back-channel talking with Penguin and telling them that they wouldn't approve the manuscript and that Penguin probably shouldn't forward that manuscript payment, even though they were obligated to under their publishing agreement because this book was never going to hit the market. Now, what's interesting about that is that that happened earlier this year. That happened, as they say it, in January of this year, where that was approved at the publishing level that Penguin said that they were going to put the money out. And the arguments against Wizards of the Coast really are premised around problems that they had in the summer of this year. And so you have timing issues that the judge or the jury or the trial in general would have to sort out. And at the end of the day, we've got these three main complaints, right? We've got a breach of contract, which seems pretty clear. We've got a breach of good faith and fair dealing, which is harder, but also seems pretty clear. And we've got intentional interference with the relationship between these authors and Penguin, which again, seems pretty clear. But on the understanding, as we talked about earlier in this video, that all of these things should be clear at this time, should be clear in a plaintiff's document, that if nothing else were to ever come into the court, the judge would say, yep, that's a claim, and would rule for the plaintiffs accordingly. Now, what would a ruling in this case mean? So they asked for damages. That's normal. What do they also ask for? An order enjoining defendant to specifically perform under the license agreement by providing approval or instructions for revisions that will obtain defendant's approval for publication of the new Dragonlance trilogy. So for those of you like Joseph LaRussa, who I had tipped at the beginning of this video, who love the Dragonlance series, you should know these authors aren't just asking for money and to walk away. They are asking for Wizards of the Coast to be forced by the court to give them the approval instructions, to give them the notes, to get this ultimately across the end zone to a publication so that you can have your Dragonlance trilogy. Now, what do I think will happen in this court case? I don't know. But in general, as we've said in virtual legality, most of these things wind up in settlement. This is a pretty good claim against Wizards of the Coast. Now, Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro are enormously litigious companies. You see that with respect to Magic of the Gathering and other kind of board game rules and things that are really on the line of copyright infringement that Hasbro brings all the time. They are very, very litigious. So they might bring a counterclaim. They might bring answers that go for 50 pages. We don't know. But in general, based on these complaints, based on how bad this looks, based on how this was covered in various places, I suspect that sometime between now and next year, we would see a settlement, we would see some kind of coming together because there does appear to be a lot of money that could be earned by really both parties by getting a Dragonlance series of books out the door.
I hope you enjoyed this summary and discussion, this deep dive into a lawsuit. And I see now that I never actually changed the uh, description of the thumbnail here. So apologies for that. But this has been about the Dragonlance lawsuit. This has been about what is happening with respect to Wizards of the Coast and Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. If you like this video, please like, subscribe, share it with those of you uh, that you think might be interested. Otherwise, we're talking about these kinds of issues, the business and law of video games, pop culture, and everything in between all the time in this space. Thank you so much for checking it out. If you saw it on YouTube, thank you so much for listening. If you listen to it as a podcast, and I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.